Hello and welcome to today's episode of Torquem Talk. I am stoked to have today's guest on, Shannon Keith. This is a woman business tycoon that's doing things a bit differently. What is she doing differently? She's saving the world. She is helping bringing women out of slavery, sex slavery, and giving them jobs as seamstresses in India. And uh, she's built a multi-million dollar business doing it. This podcast goes deeper than just, this is how you build a successful company. It actually makes you start grappling with the thoughts of slavery and sex slavery, not only in India, but our country too. It's not anything that we should ignore anymore, and I hope that this can bring a lot of enlightenment to your life. So without further ado, please enjoy this very deep conversation with Shannon, Keith, and myself. I was fascinated. I, I talked about our conversation a bit. So we um, we um, we all went to lunch, Mitch, as well um, last week, and dove into like what Sudara is doing. And we've been a part of um, the same uh, opportunity group. But the one thing that was really fascinating to me was how you changed the way I thought about um, what a prostitute in America is. And I was under the conception that uh, perception. That it's um, the girl for more or less kind of chooses that. It's an easy way out. Like, uh, look at you, you paid for that. And um, and they're into it and their heart is nails and things of that nature. But then you told me something. And in how do we how do we make it the Romeo story that you're saying or just break it down? What happens? Because I think I think other males and people and girls, because I told this to girls, too, at the wedding and stuff like that. They're like, really? Not everyone knows this. I actually think I only didn't inform one person on this, which was my girlfriend. She <laughs> knew about it. So I think it'd be really important to first be like, how does an American girl get coerced into sex slavery? Yeah, it's uh, it's sad and complicated. Right. So I think the. The fact that not a lot of people know and that it flies under the radar is how the bad guys continue to proliferate, right? Yeah. Because if everyone knew about it, then people wouldn't stand for it. And so there's so much about education that really does change things. Um, and this is not my full area of expertise because I work mostly in India, but through that work that's been almost 15 years now, mm -hmm. I definitely wanted to know what was going on in our own backyard. And then, of course, I think I mentioned my husband started a nonprofit that helps minors out of sex trafficking here in the U.S. So mm -hmm. he's much more of an expert than I am. But through his work and my passion for this population of women, not only in India, but across the world, including in the U.S., my own country, um, I've educated myself about it. So there are obviously outliers. Um, so I, this isn't a blanket statement for everyone, mm -hmm. but I can say many people um, – particularly young girls get coerced into it through this path, sort of this Romeo pimp idea that we right. were talking about. And so just to kind of break it down, what is the Romeo? What pimp? that looks like yeah. um, is a Romeo pimp is um, usually a younger man who will try and win over vulnerable young girls. They're not even women yet because yeah, they're minors. So um, between 12 and like 15, 12. years old yeah some as young as 12 there's definitely cases where they're younger but usually it's like puberty age because that's when the young girls will want to hang out with you know catch the attention or sure. whatever of this like handsome guy that's mm -hmm. trying to woo her right? right 
And basically, we call that kind of a grooming process. So um, he will either be the trafficker, pimp, or working for said pimp, mm-hmm. you know, as um, kind of part of this group. And it's maybe his job to go and woo these young, vulnerable girls, which are really victims, um, mm-hmm. to come work for them. So it's like a recruitment strategy. And they will find vulnerable young people who are, again, puberty, hormones are raging, and are really in tough situations. So classic cases might be like young girls in the foster care system, um, homeless teens, people who they identify clearly don't have safety nets and safe adults in their lives because they're going to be the easiest ones to win over. They're broken. They're hurting. They don't have safe adults in their life. Um, and as a result, well, then, as Romeo would try and like, you know, woo her over, oh, you look so beautiful. You could be a model. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see you don't have your nails done. I would love to take you on a date. I would love to get your nails done, take you shopping, take you out to dinner, all of these things. She's looking for love and she's finally saying, oh, somebody sees me. They recognize me. They know me. They love me. You love know? and maybe even a family too, right? Because if they yes. don't have one. Yes. Yeah. Good point. Right. So just a group, a community to call mm-hmm. your own. And it doesn't hurt that now he has money. Right. Whereas right. maybe some of her peers that she would see as her community, um, other homeless teens or foster care kids or kids struggling, um, maybe don't have that. So sure. he's that's kind of the bait, right, that they're going to use for these experiences. Um, and and soon really poses as her boyfriend, like he wants her to be his girlfriend. And so then she starts really falling for him. And there is this relationship that he's developing. And, you know, he might do that over a few weeks or depending on the course of a few months, you know, where she really thinks he's a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And then there becomes that's the grooming process. And then it kind of goes into like the breaking process. So there'll be a tipping point, which is like a bait and switch. Mm-hmm. Um, where he will probably try and move her from her location where she would be familiar in her hometown, where she may have some people who know her contacts. He's going to move her away from that, right? So it could be a story of like, oh, hey, I can get a job or my brother lives in said city, maybe from Bend in Sacramento. Do you think this Romeo pimp is doing this uh, in a different city, bringing them to another one where I'm guessing the base of their operation would be you yeah, think he's doing it to and multiple sometimes girls? there's a base and sometimes they keep them on the move because okay. once they're there, there is like a circuit and, and there'd be different circuits depending on where you're at in the U.S. So if you're in Bend, the circuit might include Seattle and Portland. It might uh, you might pop over to Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. You might go down to Vegas. You're definitely going to be on the I-5 whether you go all the way down to LA or stop in like Sacramento and Stockton. Is Bend a part of a circuit? Yeah, yeah, because we're right along the 97. So there's definitely the I-5 corridor, but mm-hmm. if they really want to go incognito, and basically you have to look at um, this whole ring. It's organized crime and you follow the money trail, okay. right? So they're not doing this just for fun or sport, right? They're doing it for money. Mm-hmm. And so you look at where is their money and Bend is an affluent area. So there are people who can afford to buy sex, and there's people on recreation who might do that as part of their recreation as well. So they're on vacation. There's a guy's trip going golfing. There's a business convention at the convention center. There's a rodeo in town. There's something going on at the fairgrounds. Yeah. You know, where there are people gathered and people recreating and willing to spend money, this can kind of come into play. 
So I've never even heard of, of that. I mean, obviously I see it in like Vegas and I'm like, oh, that's a hooker in New York or something like that. That's a prostitute in Chicago. I haven't, I haven't seen it. Because girls don't walk that. the tracks anymore. You don't need to. So with the invention of the cell phone and the iPhone particularly in just 2007, oh, all of the dates that. are set up online. And then Why? so you, you don't. Why don't I know that? <laughs> well, hopefully <laughs> in, because in you're not work, buying I'm in, sex. Well, no, I know. <laughs> so I mean, there's an app for everything. Like, right. Okay. So there's a prostitute app. Yeah. What, so, well, with, there's how's um, Apple allowing that to happen. Well, I don't know that there's an app just for that, but it is like Backpage, right? Has like escort app. So anywhere okay. where it would be, and again, um, they're not going to say that these are 15 year old girls or 14 year old girls. Everyone's 18, right? And an sure. escort, as it, oh, you're just paying me to hang out with you. That's legal, right? Um, but everyone knows under the surface, like what there's an exchange, an and it's is, more yeah. than just hanging out for dinner, right? Yeah. So um, you get into all sorts of apps that are like open source apps, even Facebook pages where you can just message and like mm -hmm. arrange dates. So pretty much at any given moment, anywhere you are in the world, including here in Bend, you can buy sex. So I've been at a training that Guardian Group did, like my husband, and literally he had people like pull up their cell phones, but he's like, okay, be forewarned, you might get retargeted for weird things. <laughs> but you can like pull up basically, I think at the time he had him pull up back page and there were like eight different ads posted that like right in Bend, eight different ads for for wow, sex, basically. That at wow. that moment, you could have arranged a date for that night or two hours later or whatever. <laughs> so not that safe of a little mountain town as we thought. No, they're in. And that, that's not to say that like to vilify Bend. I mean, we're, oh. it's a lot less than if you were to go to, you know, a big city and pull up, you might have 200 yeah. like things. Right. So it's all relative based on size and whatnot. But they think it's not here. So I don't really need to worry about it. That's wrong. Yeah, it's wrong. Yeah. And just because we don't see people hanging around that look like they're scantily clad, like you did in the old days where women would, you know, literally be on the street corner and yeah, you have to drive the, and pick the them ad. up. Yeah. They were the ads, yeah. right? This isn't like that anymore. So there's like sexy, seductive pictures you kind of pick from there. And then literally uh, the network, whether it's the pimp or a minion working for the pimp or whatever, will like deliver the girl to your hotel door. Okay. So, so Ben's a part of the circuit and now you're talking about the breaking process. And okay. So prior, yeah, prior, yeah. prior to the, her actually being moved around or a group, um, the breaking point will be where this, this girl, this young girl really thinks that this um, person is her boyfriend and, and then he'll move her away from her environment. So now she doesn't know where she's at, right? So she doesn't know people. She doesn't know, maybe he'll at that point take her cell phone. You know, mm -hmm. there's a way that like, she's really like, oh, so even more vulnerable. And, um, and then there's usually some sort of little incident, right? Then this is where the switch comes in, like the lie being, oh, babe, uh, the job fell through. My brother's company is no longer hiring at, you know, at the wherever, and so we need money and now we're stuck here and we need money to get back to Bend or to get back to wherever or to build our new life together. We need the down payment on our apartment or, you know, whatever the lie he's told her. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, but he said if we're like, he has some uh, easy way to make some quick cash. It's kind of gnarly, but if you're just, if we're willing to do this just this once, like we will never have to do it again and we can get like back on our feet. So, because no young girl is willingly like, yeah, let me just sell my body for sex. Like yeah. no one's signing up for that, right? Mm -hmm. There has to be a very compelling reason mm -hmm. and her now love and devotion for this person that she would do that, right? Even though everything in her being is probably saying, no, 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 I don't want to do that. So, and then that's where the breaking point is. And then once she does it for the first time, it's like, oh, well, now you could do it again. And maybe we need a little more money. And then pretty soon it's like, well, this just becomes this normal. Is, yeah. yeah. And, and now there's like a, 
Now there's like a breaking point. Is drugs involved as a normal process too? A lot of times it is because, you know, it's like, hey, let's party. And then suddenly, oh, you're inebriated and blah, blah, blah. And then even if you don't want to, now that's a coping mechanism that you're like, oh my gosh, now I'm going to get drunk because I don't want to face the night if I have to do this again. Mm -hmm. So it definitely becomes a coping um, mechanism. And then there are, I mean, there are addicts who will sell their bodies for drugs. That's usually a little bit different. Um, if there's like, because sometimes that addict doesn't have a pimp and a Romeo and you know, she might just be on the street and is like, literally like, I just need another hit. So I'm going to, you know, do whatever it takes. Okay. That's kind of different than this Romeo situation, but that that's another, you know, situation. Um, but when we're really talking about like a pimp and, and, um, And the horrible part is like you were talking about women choosing and then they get to keep the money. Mm -hmm. Um, The, the trademark of all this is that the girl never sees the money and she's fully controlled. So like the money will exchange, not necessarily in her hands, but in the, it will go to the pimp or to the handler who drops Mm -hmm. her off at the room. Give me the money. Okay. Um, So she doesn't have control of her life or her body. Meaning like now he's paying for her food. He's paying for her a shelter place mm-hmm. to stay we've heard lots of stories from survivors around That's being with slavery, withheld right? it is slavery yeah. that's exactly what it is yeah. it's sexual slavery um food being withheld what, as yeah, punishment what, what, like the slavery that we know that, that that has been grilled into like american society that we're taught with um you know african americans being brought over here is like you know the owners would have them uh in a roof over their head and fed but they can't leave they can't do anything. They can't go start a job. And if they want to kill them, then that's just how it is. And if they want to beat the heck out of them, well, these are your property. Um, that's the same thing going on here, but in a way, kind of worse. Yeah, it's and and I mean, equally as bad. I wouldn't yeah, say necessarily so worse, but because um, slaves, slaves had sexual sex. abuse all yeah. over too, that's right? True. There's like a lot of that that happened because as property, they could basically, to your point, do whatever they want, and they did. So that was horrible, and re- we're reaping the. I mean, we're still dealing with racism and all sorts of horrible why ramifications you, of that. Of course. Why do you think, though, right now in our country that? I, at least I see, maybe you don't, but I see that people are really pretty stern and against and can't believe that we enslaved a race. Right. And like that was horrible, but now it's happening, but to a, a sex, but nobody, it's not, it doesn't carry the same weight. Like people aren't as ashamed I about know, it. Aren't talking about I am it. just as horrified about it. But to your point, we need that same level of angst against it. And some of it is it, it doesn't have boundaries of race. Um, it's more gender boundaries. Right, but I think of, part of it is, unfortunately, so we live in a patriarchal society still for the most part. I mean, that's shifting, yeah. thankfully. But the men are the ones buying the sex and the men's are the ones that are the slave owners. And so maybe they're not talking about it because they still hold most of the power. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, they're the perpetrators of the crimes against women, particularly. Now, that's not to say there aren't some young boys. There are. But percentage wise, it's far less um, than girls and women. Hmm. So now that we know that this is happening here and widespread. So basically, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, well, that girl wants to do like, no, at the age of anywhere from 12 to 15, she was romanced by some, some good looking guy and it was a broken home. And then she was taken away from any connections that she might have 
to a different place where all of a sudden things are going south and she gets coerced into having sex for money the first time and it all goes downhill from there. Mm-hmm. And at some point by the time they get to be 18, 19, 20, as we were talking earlier, you're saying like they get to be like kind of hard as nails and they don't want to leave. This is what they know. Some do want to leave. Some are afraid of leaving because they'll get beaten or killed, whatever right. the case is. Um, but where you are really making an impact as well, or where you're making a big impact is in India where um, – it's a different sort of way that they're putting into yeah. that, that they're put into sex slavery, right? And it's by the caste system, correct? Yes, and we are, we don't have this Romeo pimp scenario where um, people are lured in, you know, based on feelings and love and teenage angst and not having a family. It's really abject poverty and being born into the what they call like bottom of the pyramid. So you're population born, in terms you're, you're of the you're a caste. born slave. Basically, you're, you're born, born sex slave, slave. Mm-hmm. or you're born very poor. And so um, if one little incident happens that like topples everything, mm-hmm. like uh, the father of the very poor farming family dies and there's no other way to have an income, even if that woman or her children weren't born into the brothels, they can easily find themselves there because they don't have safety nets. And now the the breadwinner has died and the mom will do whatever it takes to feed herself and her children. Um, and so, you know, people fall into it that way by mm-hmm. no choice of their own, but just by abject poverty. So then when they're in poverty, they basically are either born into it or they're unfortunately life circumstances happen. And then you, through your travels, end up going to India and you were telling a story of um, donating a well. And that was really cool. But then you got sidetracked. And if you could tell that, like, what, what happened to sidetrack? was it went from donating well to, like, wait, what is going on here? Yeah. We, um, again, were working with this amazing organization in India who cared about this population of people. And mm-hmm. we're kind of trying to figure out a way to help. And by the way, this is 15 years ago, yes? Yeah, 2005. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, and had gone to India for the first time in 2004, loved it, went back the next year. That's when the well dedication happened. And it just so was matched with a brothel community, which at the time we didn't know that we just, um, were in India at the well dedication. And then it was like, Oh, tell us a little bit more about this community. Who, who are these folks that are receiving this well? Mm -hmm. And then was just shocked and horrified to find out what sexual slavery was like at the time I thought as you did, I had a huge misconception of what prostitution looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was maybe the girl's choice and that she was receiving the money. You know, I thought all of those things. Well, I, I actually thought that the sex slavery thing that was only happening overseas in places like India. And then the U S is like, Oh no, that's by choice. So that right. pff, mind blown as of last week on that. So, <laughs> so anyway, to well, and you find out they, <laughs> it's a good thing. I mean, <laughs> ignorance is not a good thing. The right. pursuit of knowledge is what we all need. Amen. But anyway, yeah. okay, so you see the well, or you, you're donating so there, to the well. Yeah, working with this amazing Indian-based organization who's wanting to help this population of underserved mm-hmm. people, right, in this brothel community. So um, my- What was the name of the town? It was right outside of Tanali in India. Mm-hmm. So okay. just just outside. I don't know that this little community had its own name. Tanali with some map on that? Yeah, yeah. cool. Um, and so- I just started, we started asking questions, right? I wasn't there by myself. We had a, a small group of people with us, my husband, um, my brother-in-law, my husband's twin brother and his wife. And so we we were all there and I was just asked to share a few words at the well dedication. And then through that, just started asking questions and just come to find out that 
wow, this looks completely different. My mind was blown, you know, on mm-hmm. that day. And um, everything kind of I thought I knew about the world just like fell apart. I mean, I thought slavery had ended with the Emancipation Proclamation. I knew we still had a lot of work to do in terms of race and all of that. But I just did not know there were sex slaves and that kids could be born into it. And these kids weren't going to school because their moms couldn't afford for them to go to school. And I was like, well, doesn't the government pay for them to go to school? No, absolutely not. I mean, it was just like one barrier on top of another. And then those little kids being uneducated, they were just going to grow up and have the same fate, right? And so the whole just cycle of slavery continues Is it just without intervention. That go into sex slavery? You know, there are some men, uh, young boys that will, but the the numbers are far less, okay. right? They would be far less, um, but there, there are some. And um, so the young men, again, if they're not educated, they become a lot of times with services around um, around it. So the pimps, the brothel owners, the the bartenders, the people servicing the guys, mm-hmm. the taxi driver, you know, all the services um, are around the brothel community, right? If they themselves aren't selling sex, but again, they're uneducated. So, so they may find jobs around this community. Okay. So with the community itself, can you do a zoom out as far as on the map, Mitch? Mm-hmm. Of, uh... Oh, and as you're seeing some temples, right? So in, in India, there are tons of temples mm-hmm. and um, there are even such things as temple prostitutes. Yep. So that yep. is go, go, part sorry, of go a caste. On a little bit. So temple prostitutes are a caste? Temple prostitutes, yeah. So there's Wait, a whole caste temple, of temple prostitutes. Temple, I'm assuming, is a religious thing. I have yes. not been to India. And right. I, I know so only there, very it's, um, little amounts of Hinduism. India is like 85% Hindu. And uh-huh. so like you'll see up there, there's a, a there's a little temple that has the god there. Yeah. Um, and there are all sorts of different temples all over the place. You'll see places of their worship for their Hindu gods. Uh-huh. And there are things called temple prostitutes. So a part of their what? whole thing is enslaving these young girls to be temple prostitutes. So that's part of their religious okay. kind of worship as well. It, would this be similar to like having Catholic prostitutes? <laughs> Like at churches, like I, I, I'm trying to, like I'm not uh, saying it's happening, you know. And I and I'm not saying too. I do not want to misrepresent because I know lovely, wonderful people and people here in the U.S. No, that I'm are not friends saying, of mine no, that are Hindu. No. So not everyone yeah, that's yeah. Hindu well, would hey, partake. Catholicism kind of came out a few years ago, thanks to Boston Globe, that oh, one out of eight priests are diddling little boys. Right. So it's not like right, that's, right. There's there's no uh, religious institutions that's safe from scrutiny, mm. right? Um, and, and so I'm not saying all Hindus partake in temple prostitution, but there is a huge thing and problem with temple prostitutes. So young girls will again, and it's kind of, um, property of the temple priests and people will, um, what they believe I think is part of their, I don't know if they call it worship or what is like having, sex with these young temple prostitutes. Okay. Yeah. So this is just like, you know, gender. It goes deep. It goes deep. Yeah. And it's, um, and you know, the families you know, that buy into this, um, you know, they see their service as giving their young daughters in service of this whole thing. So mm-hmm. there's so much um, kind of societal 
injustices and cultural injustice there that are huge barriers. So that's vastly different than what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are still young girls finding themselves in the same situation without autonomy or control over their own bodies and people using them for sex here in the U.S., there in India. But the ways in which they get there, the paths um, that lead to their slavery are different. So in Tenali, I, I asked Mitch to pull up the map because I was curious as to um, if there, if Tenali itself, like what is the rough population and are people coming from other towns around it where there might be more wealth or less? You know, the sad part is this is everywhere. So you really don't need to do that. So unlike okay, here, know you know, like, like in the, the state of Nevada, yeah. there's some like, you know, I think um, certain counties and interestingly enough, it's not even Vegas, but. Certain counties have where it's legal, right? right? So there's actually legal brothels. Um, it's just everywhere in India. So people don't need to travel. They can find it in their own town. I'm sure there are places in India that would be interesting to note, like what's the Vegas quote unquote of India. So what made but, uh, um, Tanali so more we of a brothel were, town than another town? It, it, does, it isn't more of a brothel town. That's okay. what I was saying. It isn't. It's just that we were working with this NGO and they happened to match our well and the NGO we were working with in India was based out of Tenali, and they happened to match the well we were dedicating with this brothel community that just happened to be in their town. Was that a no shit moment for but, you? <laughs> no, just I like mean, when you started to realize that this is all This thing. is everywhere. Yeah. yeah. This isn't like, oh, Tenali's the Vegas of India. No, this is just a little town like Bend. Right. Right? Like, it's not as small as Bend. It might be 500,000 or a million people, you know, and India's for population. India, yeah. India's population is like three times that of the U.S. It's 1.3 billion. So um, every town has it. They don't need to travel. Now, some towns are bigger than others. So you're going to get a bigger problem in the bigger towns just because Mm -hmm. the number of people are larger. Right. So that's just um, those are just percentages. So how did the oh shit moment turn into a company that is doing good helping these women out? Of this, you know, it was really your company. what I defined as like a moment of inspiration that day. Like we didn't, it didn't really have to like marinate and think about it and what should I do. It was really like an epiphany mm-hmm. moment. Um, so simultaneously, my heart was like shattered and broken into a thousand pieces, and I I would never see the world the same after that. It was kind of like the red pill, blue pill moment in the mm-hmm. Matrix. Like whoa, once you know this, you can't unknow it. Um, and I really couldn't live with myself and go back to like my cushy job and lifestyle in, in, you know, Southern California. That's right. where I was living at the time. Um, and so it was, it was a moment of like, I can't unknow this and I can't live with myself if I don't do my part. Um, and I knew my part was just a small link in the chain, but if I, it takes everyone doing their part to, to like create social change that we want to see, um, in the world, as Gandhi said. So uh, that that was the moment of just like, okay, these women, they need a job if they don't want to sell their bodies to mm-hmm. feed their kids and themselves. Like, And and I was like, I could probably sell something. <laughs> I know how to do that. And so um, something ends and, up becoming high stylish yeah, pajama pants. Right. So pajamas and loungewear that are mm-hmm. really beautiful and tell a story and mm-hmm. are very, you know, they um, are rooted, all of our raw material is in India. So it's Indian fabrics and prints and mm-hmm. they're named after women in our program. So every um, pant print or robe tells a story of a real woman who was once living in slavery and is on her journey to freedom. So it's completely integrated. Our mission is like the very ethos and DNA of our company. How did those first, can you tell me about the first pants? 
I remain unsold. Yeah, the first five or ten. They were funny. (laughs) But then, well, like, who was she that made them? And how how did that all come? So there was one them from you. Yeah. How did this thing get going? I know it's so beautiful. It's like your firstborn child. You know, like you don't really know (laughs) what you're doing. But um, as a parent, so we partnered. Okay, so interestingly enough, um, that group in Tenali that we we partnered with didn't have any other work beyond just helping with this water well for that community. So they didn't have a sewing center. They didn't have vocational training. So when I had this idea and was like, I really want to partner, like I couldn't partner with them any further to help this population. So I had the idea of the women's pajamas and loungewear because I knew that would be fairly simple for them to sew. And it was a raw material, a a textile that's abundant in India. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't sort of like exporting some American idea on what they should make. You know, they're already a, a country full of like amazing textiles. But then my challenge was, okay, well, who's working with this population of women Mm -hmm. and who would be able to then, are there any people teaching them how to sew and what sort of vocational options are there? So then I had to do research around that piece um, upon coming back to the U.S. and found a really amazing organization out of Mumbai, which is in a different part of the country, that was, in fact, working with this population of women and had a little sewing center, loosely, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. A few machines kind of teaching them to sew, but they didn't have any outlet for sewing. So that's where we could then provide a market. And I could say, hey, if we could partner together and you can make these pants that I know American women will buy, then you could have jobs for your mm-hmm. sewing center and then I could have something to sell and this will be like a symbiotic synergistic relationship. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we started. So there were six women with our first lot of pants. It was like, maybe we made them have make a hundred pants or something. It was pretty small. And I sold them out of my garage to friends and um, to ladies at the church and to my book club. You know, it was really just very what organic. What were you saying to them? Um, cause I, I'm guessing the marketing out of your garage was just you going around and telling Yeah, people. I just had a bin of stuff, right? So we didn't have what a was website. Your, what was your elevator? You know, it was just that I went to India and I was completely shattered by what I saw. And I feel like this was a really practical way to help. Like, do you want to buy these (laughs) or do you want to give them as gifts or whatever? And Mm -hmm. some of them, you know, they were really cute, but let's be honest, like they weren't as awesome as they are now in terms Mm -hmm. of like the quality and the fabric. And I mean, we've really evolved and improved over the last over a decade. So some of them were like, whoa, the stitching is going to really come out easy. And like, you know, we, we had very sympathetic, um, compassionate consumers mm-hmm. that were willing to say, yeah, we're like, these are cute, but I'm buying it because of the cause and because I believe in what you're doing and I want to be part of it and I want to help change, right? So the first few batches were really quite funny, Um, as probably most product companies are. You know, like you come out with your first one and then you look back on it and you're like, oh my gosh, that was so bad. But at the time, you feel like it's awesome because it's your first production run or whatever. And you're actually doing it. And we're doing it. You actually have something, you have something physical and you're you're helping somebody immensely on the other side of the world. You're stepping out. Um, and you can't iterate on something unless you have the thing, right? No, to make exactly. better. So. Yeah, you need to make a thing. You can't just think about the thing yeah, the whole exactly. time. The thing has to exist. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, I didn't notice that the thing stitching, that wasn't on Photoshop. Yeah, we didn't really do stitches on Photoshop. <laughs> yeah. We got to make it and then we'll yeah. see what happens. Right. Um, so something towards just doing it. How long did it take uh, from when you had the idea Let's say not just the idea, but you're like, this is going to happen like that. Like this is happening. This isn't like, oh, right. one day like th- this is happening yeah. moment 
to the first pair of pants that you sold? It was pretty fast, actually. I want to say it was like six or nine months. I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty quick because we bought, and it was probably even sooner than that. Um, but the pants that the women sold was, or that the women made um, in the sewing center was probably like six or nine months. But I bought a bunch of material mm-hmm. home from that trip to India um, and just in a big suitcase. And then like had uh, other friends of mine who knew how to sew better than me actually like mock them up from mm-hmm. just a, a print at like Joanne's Fabrics pattern. Um, and then was kind of like, hey, would you buy these? Will you buy these? Like maybe we should make our first lot is just kind of like um, a little bit of like a fundraiser money right. so that we can have some seed money to like actually do real fabrics in a production run and that kind of thing. So it, it was pretty fast. I mean, I was not letting grass grow under my feet. And at the time I was married, but didn't have kids. Mm-hmm. So it became basically yeah, my full-time second job. Sure. Yeah. It was like a full-time job, but I was already working my full-time day job that would fund all lot of this activity. Yeah, out of the way, Netflix. Well, at the time, was there Netflix then? No. No? Not no, that wasn't no. That, Well, they, you know, it came in a little DVDs. Mm. <laughs> little DVDs. Okay, yeah. So those are but not. But I don't even porn. think that was then. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, so then what I'm curious on is, well, a few things. One, Sudara. What does that mean? So it's or a word we mean? made up okay. because, again, I'm very practical. Mm-hmm. So to get the URL on other words is like impossible. Mm-hmm. So as an online company, you sort of have to like make something up. Yeah. Um, but we want it to be meaningful and not just like completely like alphabet soup. So um, we started looking at like Sanskrit, basically Indian words mm-hmm. and um, that were meaningful. And one is Sundara, S-U-N-D-A-R-A. But of course, you cannot get that URL. And mm-hmm. it means beautiful. And so we just removed the N. So we kind of played around with lots of different, like, hey, what does this have a ring? What do we like, you know? Um, and then we just came up with Sudara. So because it's a made-up word, it mm-hmm. is ours. So we could, you know, buy the websites and I think all it's of a, the things. I think it's a pretty name, too. Thank you. So then, And so it's a riff off um, beautiful because we believe that all of these women and children and human beings are created equally and beautifully. Mm-hmm. And then we have a really beautiful product. So it just plays well together. Yeah, exactly. And then what is, what's the consumer getting? Like what am what am I getting when I buy this for my girlfriend? How do I know I'm making a difference? Ooh, I love that question. Um, well, you're getting lots of things. You're getting like a stellar gift at a good price because mm-hmm. we wanted to make it sort of, you know, higher end, but still accessible. So these aren't like $300 pajamas, which those exist, they're out there, but that's not accessible to the masses. And what that then communicates is like, you have to be really wealthy to make a difference. And so we were very intentional, um, staying around that $50 price point that no, anyone could make a difference Mm -hmm. because even college kids spend $50 on their jeans or shoes or whatever. Right. So we wanted it to be accessible that through your purchase, you're making a difference. Um, because that's how this whole thing works, right? So the consumers are really the heroes of the story because without them, um, appreciating the products, buying them, wearing them and gifting them. Like we could make all the pants we wanted, but it would stop, right? If we didn't have a market that was um, seeing that. Yeah. And and it's a badge of honor, you know, kind of like where people would wear Tom's shoes and it was like, oh, look at, I'm cool. You know, and the labels are on the outside and like, I'm helping people. I'm wearing these shoes. Um, it's similar that you're helping people by gifting this product because you could buy cheap pajama pants at Target or whatever. Sure. Uh, but when you're saying that, I'm helping people. How am I helping people through Sidara compared to like how Tom's is helping people? So Sidara is all about this virtuous supply chain. 
So we don't just give virtuous supply chain. So we don't just give money back and we don't give handouts. So Mm -hmm. it's the whole like Chinese proverb of teaching the person to fish and not just giving them fish. So with our virtuous supply chain, it's all about fishermen, fisherwomen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so by buying the products, you're creating uh, jobs in that supply chain. So we need to keep making products as people continue to buy them and spread the word organically. Um, and those that are making the products get a job. And then it also kicks off revenue for additional job training, because let's face it, not every woman who comes out of the brothels or as highest risk wants to be a seamstress. Mm -hmm. Um, so we don't want to force people to be seamstresses. That's sort of a different form of slavery. Right. So we want people to choose freely. And so there's usually a handful of vocational options they could choose. Um, as part of their journey to freedom. Mm-hmm. So we create the opportunities and then women are free to choose what opportunity they want to take in terms of their um, vocation. So that's a lot better because then you're you're now paying them and they can go out and buy shoes, food, whatever the case is, yeah. where what I'm kind of understanding from Tom's model is uh, if I pay for some shoes and they give a pair of shoes to somebody in need, that person's just like, cool, I got some shoes. And as soon as they bust apart and everything like that, well, it's pretty much done. Yeah. Where you guys are like, well, what if we supply jobs? Yeah. Um, and that's what they have. They now have a job and they don't have to go into sex slavery. And so you by wearing our pajama pants is helping these women have jobs exactly. that are sustainable and Continues. And that's a game changer, right? Jobs jobs are a game changer. Yeah. And at the end of the day, but it really isn't rocket science. I mean, we try and complicate things, but all we have to do is have a moment of empathy and compassion and literally put ourselves in that person's shoes, right? So in our minds, think, if I were there, would I want someone to give me a handout or would I want someone to give me a job? Mm-hmm. It's a no-brainer. You would want the job, right? For long-term self-sustainability. Yeah. So we try and make it really complicated and esoteric, and it Why isn't. Why is that? Why do we um, want to go esoteric with it? Make it complicated. It's, I mean, I'm not a therapist, but I feel like it gives us a pass because it gives we, us a pass. Yeah, it, it gives us a pass to a take pass. action. Okay, right? It gives us a pass because when we get all esoteric and we start like getting really philosophical, like. I don't have to take action because now I'm in this different space. And then that's really complicated. And let me think about it a little bit more and let me break it down and, Mm. but blah, blah, blah. And all the time, like we're doing this and we're not just like taking decisive action to do the thing right in front of us that like as a human being with a pulse, like we should do. Mm -hmm. Right. It it sort of, you know, and I'm not saying like, I, I love thinking, (laughs) you know, I'm, I'm not saying thinking's bad. I think it's really important. Um, but it can become, um, an excuse, an excuse to not help people. I think it's, I, yeah, well, but then I would, I could argue that if you're not thinking and putting yourself out there or just thinking as a whole as to what is a sex slavery and what's going on, then you wouldn't be making a difference either. Yeah. Because you're just like, well, what's the point? I don't really like those pajama pants. It's like, well, here's the thing. It's actually supplying jeans. It's not jeans supplying jobs. Like, okay, that kind of changes things a bit. Now I now I, I don't care. I'm buying them for my wife. Yeah, like, exactly. Because and, it does that. Not and, to say I, I like your pajamas, <laughs> I'm, I'm, but I'm saying it adds If you have any taste, you will like them. But. <laughs> <laughs> and I think um, the deeper thinking is really like, because we're trying to create systemic change, right? I mean, that's really what we're trying to do at Sudara. Mm-hmm. We're trying to not only get you to buy many and often 
our products because that directly impacts our supply chain and the women. But I'm trying to get you as a consumer to think about all of your purchasing power. Mm. I'm trying to get you to think about all of it, right? What's so it's next? not just about curious, pajamas. What's your next pet peeve when it comes to the purchasing power? I've got a few, but I want to hear your next one. What do you mean? Like to find I mean, peeve. like, um, what do you want consumers to stop buying? Oh, to stop buying? Oh, my gosh. There's so many things, right, that we could talk about. Um, I know. That's why I said number one. I know. Outside uh, of. Outside. Well, coffee and chocolate are big. Um, because really? those are really easy and they're slavery. They're sli- oh yeah, bottled water for sure. Like particularly in Oregon, like our water is so good. Seriously, oh, like know. why are we putting all this plastic into the planet? Even if we're recycling it, it's just a waste. There's a lot of studies coming out so over the past peeve. few weeks of the amount of plastic we're actually uh, ingesting because of bottled water. Yeah, and it's just why I never do. Like right, this a glass is great. Just yeah. carry it around. I'm always we had bottled like, water here in the beginning. My sister was getting it, and I was just like, "What are you doing?" She's like, "Well, that's what the guests want." I was just like, "No, they no, don't. We'll give them a glass of water and some yeah. ice, and, and it's I gonna be way more it. delicious. Yeah, it's way more delicious. <laughs> that's what I want. So thank you for being yeah. conscientious. So yes, that's a big one. But in terms of, I always think about it in terms of slavery, right? Like that's yeah, a lot yeah, of my yeah, filter. Yeah, yeah. Coffee and chocolate. So, so coffee and chocolate you're are me big stop ones. eating coffee and chocolate. No, I'm going to make you eat better coffee and chocolate. Okay, which right? coffee and chocolate do I need? So you need to go direct trade. So you need to be asking. And, and in Ben, Ice thankfully, we're um, We could quickly con- do like a, those boxes, you know, like Karen yes, and stuff go, like that. Right. That's just like, you have Sadar. This is like, this is how you They are. do actually have conscientious subscription conscientious boxes. Box? Yeah, they oh, do. We do I, I subscribe to it. It's good. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but well. they, uh, so coffee and chocolate have a lot of slavery in their supply chain, but there mm-hmm. are lots of good companies that don't. But you can't just buy like the generic coffee and Hershey's and stuff. You really have to like go to this section at the grocery store. Most all grocery stores will where there's like divine chocolates and like all of these. They need to be like fair trade and it'll say on there. And then you you can buy those. What does it mean when it's not fair trade? What does it mean when I'm buying Hershey's? It means, um, and Hershey's won't say like, yeah, we use slaves, but they will <laughs> do like 30, uh, 30 steps deep of how they don't really know their supply chain. So they'll go, oh, we buy it from this exporter who buys it from this and that and the other. And like, so, and then like when nobody's accountable, see if you can find anything. Nobody's like accountable. Slavery. You don't have to pull right? it up if you find anything. Yeah. So when nobody's accountable, nobody's accountable. Mm-hmm. But if you can say, which a lot of the small, like if you go to, you know, Backport is one of my favorite local coffee shops, like there's direct trade. So it's like, no, yeah. this is bought from this farmer and they're paid fair and blah, blah, blah. Great. We don't have 30 middlemen to like couch where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, but My girlfriend also loves back porch. We go there all the time and she loves awesome. that the the coffee is fair trade and that the owners actually go and yeah. they're part of the community. Right. And, and there are other coffee shops in town too. And so you just ask like, hey, is your coffee fair trade or direct trade is even more because then you really know. Right. So back porch, I think most of coffee is direct trade, but even just like fair trade that there I have is to confess some. my ignorance. Is there now <laughs> slavery when it comes to not sex slavery, but like just labor? Oh, yeah. It's huge. Okay. It's huge. Cool. So if you think about so, like, Patient proclamation, not a lot. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it's it's huge when it comes to picking agriculture. So a lot of the migrant workers are basically slaves if there aren't like fair practices and people watching. Um, so think about picking tomato, strawberry, you know, whatever. Like there's a lot of slavery that goes on there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, coffee. And then chocolate has uses a lot of child labor along the Ivory Coast of Africa. So you want to get um, fair trade and direct trade chocolate. And you can look even like Trader Joe's, it'll, it'll say fair trade, you know? So that means there's like a third party certifying that they have to like go through and kind of prove to be able to put that label on. 
Um, it's not a hundred percent because a lot of coffee like and even chocolate. Well, it'll be like as long times. as maybe thirty percent of your ingredients are fair trade, you could put it on. So maybe only thirty percent is certified, but not. Way. <laughs> in an unfair kind of way. It's a little bait and switch on the consumer. But yeah. Anyway, so there are, um, yeah, pretty much, but I mean, the rule of thumb is you have to look and ask the brand. And mm -hmm. if they're not saying they're doing good, then you don't know and they don't know. And mm -hmm. if they don't know, chances are they're just going cheapest, fastest, cheapest, cheapest, <laughs> sure. because their margins are better. And so chances are there's going to be slavery in their supply chain. So you really have to ask tough questions, whether you're buying jeans, shoes, hair care products, you know, whatever it is, you as the consumer are responsible um, to hold the brands accountable. And if we start moving in that direction as a society, they will go where the money is. So because if Hershey's- child labor? Yeah. You go this back up to that? Child laborers? Yeah, huh? Coco's child laborers. Yep. So if Mars, Mars Nestle, 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 and Hershey's nearly two decades ago to stop using cocoa hearts and yeah, chili, right. yet much of their chocolate you buy still yeah. has it. So they made the pledge and then they're not doing it, right? But so, this is and here it is, right? This, this is what I found was interesting. Was, okay, so how old are you? A Washington Post reporter asked one of them, 19. And he's obviously not 19, right? Uh -huh. so that, yeah, it says it. Yeah, that would make him legal. But as he talks, he casts nervous glances at the part of yeah. Said so right. 15. Yep. There's 15. Right. And this is exactly what the girls will do that sell their bodies for sex. Like I told you, no one's going to say they're 15. They all say they're 18 or 19 because then they're legal adults. Right. Um, so again, these are children being forced into horrible situations. That 15 year old kid should be in school. Right. He shouldn't be forced to pick cocoa literally for a dessert. You I see, mean, come on, people. So he didn't he didn't even say it too. So he wrote it in the sand. Because he would get beat like, he would get beaten and right. and fired and whatever. And yeah. this is maybe the way he's feeding his himself and maybe his family or his younger siblings or whatever. So it really the onus is on us to hold these people accountable because I promise you, if we stop buying that or demanding, oh, they would away. suddenly switch over. Mm -hmm. Hershey's isn't going to go out of business. They're just going to switch all of their business to a fair trade model. Right. Right. right? But because we all want to shop at Walmart and get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, they have no reason to switch. Well, the, like unless the, the consumers demand it, they're not switching anything. Well, hopefully we can convince one or two people from this show, maybe even more. And they're like, oh, I don't know about that. Maybe 10, maybe 20, maybe 100. I am already I mean, I already do buy um, I, not too much in the fair trade, but organic, everything like that. Like that's something where I love what the market can do. All yeah. of a sudden the market could be like. Hey, you're all eating a bunch of crap. And then we get informed. There wasn't a law that came in. There was no right. law that said you need to start making organic food and non-GMO food. We just said, I'm not buying this crap anymore. Right. And now we have entire stores that are all organic. Natural grocers, Trader Joe's. Fred Meyer's more and more organic section is taking over the Walmart other Walmart has an organic section. Yeah, even. Walmart. Exactly. Yeah. So what you're saying is it would shift. Like It would, it would be shift a fair because people follow the dollar, right? Yeah. Um, the problem is, unfortunately... I mean, it's, I just am impatient and I want this shift to happen faster because to your point, still, there's still food deserts in our country mm -hmm. and not everyone can afford to buy organic. So like, whereas you might be able to afford that, yeah. um, there's lots of single moms that are struggling or people on welfare that cannot afford to buy organic. And so they're going to buy the Hershey's, they're going to buy the whatever. Um, and so we just need to make um, 
a much bigger splash and really just, you know, you think that's by legislation. I, I think uh, part of it is, I think it's by just really community action, right? Like we need more community organizers. So like, for instance, that's probably a pain in the butt for my kids. And I don't like not let them eat if someone else gives them a Hershey bar, but I don't buy it. Like at Halloween, I'm not buying Hershey's chocolate. I'm not buying anything. I mm-hmm. might buy like uh, jelly beans or something, you know, they don't have. And may- maybe those, I, I just don't know how slavery, but they don't have cocoa beans and they're not anything. I might buy Swedish fish or suckers or whatever um, from Trader Joe's, but I'm not buying Hershey's chocolates. Even when we do s'mores, I mean, we're in Bend. We go camping a lot. Mm-hmm. I will go to Trader Joe's or I will go to Fred Meyer in the section where they sell fair trade chocolate and I'll buy all my stuff. And I'm not buying Hershey's for my s'mores. I'm buying fair trade chocolate. Yeah. There's milk chocolate. It's yummy. It's delicious. You can go more gourmet. And your money didn't support yeah. slavery. And my kids are still having s'mores and they're happy little clams, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. then it's an opportunity to involve them and why they shouldn't buy these products either. Mm. Right. Because we are training up the next generation of what um, is acceptable or not. Right. So, you think this would be easier to do than like saying uh, war on drugs in the 80s or 90s of cocaine? Because you'd see like um, that Pablo Escobar and all the drugs and everything like that was killing people literally, but Americans were still doing it. And they knew, but they just didn't care. Which is kind of and what's happening right now. Like we know that our fast food is killing us and we know that like all this stuff and yet we still keep consuming it and eating it or whatever. So well, there they're running into some problems, and you can say a lot of good things about like the vegan movement happening under that. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I could go to Del Taco and get a Beyond Meat burrito. Yeah, which is which great. is not that healthy, but when I'm hungover, it's okay. <laughs> if it's the bill, you don't want a salad in that it, moment. Yeah, <laughs> Let's exactly. Be um, I don't go to a lot of fast food except for those certain mornings. I'm like, yeah, let's get that Del Taco burrito <laughs> with the Beyond Meat. But um, but you are seeing that shift happen. You are seeing McDonald's numbers go down. You are seeing. Um, I think I just drove by the Applebee's in Ben and it looked like the sign was off of it. It looks mm. like it went out of business. Yeah. Yeah. And across from it is McGrath's, which also went out of business. Not as big as Applebee's, obviously, but it is a chain of seafood restaurants. And that's been that fish has been covered up by black freaking um uh, garbage bags for years now yeah um so in our town at least you see like no i'm gonna be going to jewels or wild rose or um any of these like local places as opposed to applebee's so it is possible for a market to move and in my in this case like the organic movement it can move a lot faster um the hard part like you're saying and what i would love to find the answer to is and I think you're getting to people that are within the community and advising to not be eating Hershey's chocolate is that money part though. Mm -hmm. We need alternatives that are affordable, which is why, I mean, even at Sudara, we, like I said, we were very adamant that our price point would be accessible. Now it's not accessible for everyone. And we get that because at some point we just have to do business, you know, and we can't, um, we can't not pay our ladies a fair wage and all of that. Um, but you have to be intentional about taking a hit on your margins because for us, like the greater good is more important than the highest profit margin we could make, right? If I wanted to make the highest profit margin, I'd get them made really cheaply in like Vietnam or China. And then I could get the pants made cheaper there, sure. right? But it would be slave labor and all of this stuff and, you know, and and toxic dyes to the people and And so I'm not willing to do business like that. And so until consumers start demanding these big companies to shift, they're not going to shift on their own free will. They're just not because who 
of these multi-million billion dollar companies are going to just give up their margins to their shareholders and all of this, right? They're, mm-hmm. They need no, to. They, make, there needs to be a reason, and that's for the wall to not open for that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and for big, um, big places. So for me, it's like yes, we want to support the small businesses, the natural mm-hmm. grocers, all of that for sure. We need more of those. We need more accessible. And we also need to not vilify the Walmarts of the world if they're willing to work with us Mm -hmm. and bring more organic things, bring more fair trade options. Stop just buying slave laden products from China. Like, right, let's start making that shift because then they can distribute to the masses or the Costco's of the world, you know, all of those. Do you find yourself doing that in the marketing for Sudara? Um, I find myself educating people a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. just our conversation where you're like, I had no idea until yeah, sure. like we met about like the reality of. So people can get overwhelmed, kind of analysis paralysis. So I feel like if they can take one step, like that's what we want to do. Because it's like drinking out of a fire hose, as they say. Like mm-hmm. we can't do everything perfectly. We're not going to. So what's like the one thing I can do? Is it coffee? Is it chocolate? Great. Start there. Then is it gifting Sudara at the holidays? Great. Start there. That's like your one thing for this year. Just do that. Okay. That's now part of your routine. I only buy fair trade coffee and, you know, chocolate and and gifting from conscious company. And then next year, how do we add on the next thing? Now we're cleaning up our whatever our skincare products okay now that now make it a habit like it's kind of like working out you're not going to go from zero to a marathon in one day but i find and what you're saying when i do get committed to doing stuff like that whether it's working out or whether it's um looking at my uh, plastic intake like i'll start by being like i am it started with uh bottle waters and this is like three or four years ago for me, I was like, there's no point. It Ever. doesn't make a lick of sense. <laughs> yeah. um, and so now I have plenty of hydro flasks and uh, competitors to like get them for Christmas. Uh, Facebook sends me, I just bunch of this stuff. So I never am short of a water bottle. And then after I was doing that, I was just like, yeah, but these plastic bags and before they made the law here long before that, I was like, I got this truck of all this room in it. When I do go to the grocery store, there's no reason why there shouldn't be some reusable bags. And by the way, if you live in this town and bend, Try to go to a festival and not get one or five of those for free. When people <laughs> yeah. are paying for those, it's like, just go to a festival and get like Bank of America. Now, everybody, you'll have all the reusable bags you need. We need them to get them from fair trade places. <laughs> oh, <laughs> see, like okay, the next so thing. that's the next <laughs> thing, right? So they're probably getting them made really cheap in China, but anyway. so yeah, but that's happening. And then for me, like, then this wasn't within that, that was happening. And then my girlfriend started showing me that, like, well, why are you, when you're going to coffee shops, make sure you go back porch because of fair trade. And she's going to love this. Episode. I told you, I'm glad you had her on. And, um, and I'm going into coffee shops with my own like hydroflask type cup. Yeah. Cause what's the point? Like, why right. do I need the paper one? Right. As well? And even if they say like, I always just get their cup, you know what I mean? Jackson's mm-hmm. corner. Same. I love them too. Um, and it's like here to go. And it's like, for sure here, like, mm-hmm. it, you know, why would you, unless you're really getting it to go, then bring your own hydroflask. Yeah. But if you're staying there, why would you get a paper cup with a plastic lid just to throw it away? You know, exactly. like we just can little small changes every day can make like a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, even like when we go camping, right. We're campers. So if we must, I'll get like paper plates, not the styrofoam ones. And then we like take our own silverware. Like you yep. don't need plastic cutlery, no. right. Ever. No. Why? The eating experience is so much better with a real fork anyway. Mm -hmm. They never break. So just little things like that that 
I mean, aggregate 7 billion people on the planet like doing these things Mm -hmm. will make a difference. And it will happen faster than people think, because once you start doing one thing that's good, I find at least for me and I see with other people like, well, what else can I do? Yeah. And that's pretty cool. I've been feeling really good getting a lot of oxytocin from doing these good things without getting any like initial benefit besides my own like virtue of knowing I'm doing what is right. It just gets contagious. And if you're around educating people on the other side, now all of a sudden I'm not just looking at plastics and paper, which was one thing I was just thinking of. I think a lot of people are up in arms about plastic as well. Cause we like that war on plastic straws. Again, that wasn't a government thing. It is now they did make a law in Seattle. They didn't make a law in California, but at first it wasn't the laws that made the uproar. It right. was that turtle viral right. uh, video. plastic straw video. <laughs> yeah. That's what did it. So people saw that and I had never seen anything like it in my life. All of a sudden I was walking in cause I didn't see it um initially and i was walking in the office and everybody was just like no more plastic straws all plastic and my team was going through like (laughs) all the plastic straws and making sure they're all getting recycled and they're paper ones and they were shamed i was like and it happened in a matter of like a week i was like what happened and that happened and then laws were made to make sure it didn't but you're so shamed to be using one anyway right And where I was going with that is I think that was happening because you can see it easily. You saw the turtle. You see the videos of the Pacific uh, garbage patch of plastic. You don't see a lot of sex slavery videos. You don't see a lot of chocolate slavery videos. Right. And yet, I mean, readily available. Mitch looked it up in like half a minute. And then here we see this photo. So, again, we don't want to see it. I, I know that's like a problem. It's, that's like the, it's okay to look at like plastic in an ocean, but why is it not? Because the human like experience, I don't know if it just digs too deep into our shame. I mean, maybe mm. there's like some weird like Freudian things there or whatever. There is. But I think it's too much. And so we're just in denial and we ignore it. Right. Because I can cope with the turtle. I mean, sure, I feel bad or whatever, but mm. like I can watch that over and over. Mm. Could I really stand to watch the harsh realities of how evil human beings can treat each other. And can I really stomach that and then go back to work? Well, there's actually, I'm glad I'm going to grab this book. <laughs> this is, it's Ryan Holiday. This guy's a genius. This was his first book. Um, it's trust me, I'm lying. And so what happened in there talking about this human side and what I was just thinking of is, Pictures of Detroit, you know how those go viral all the time Mm -hmm. of like um, the train station that's now empty malls that are completely empty. Yeah. Yeah, If you look up like apocalyptic pictures of Detroit, they always go viral. It's like things that companies do that like Gizmodo, they're all like, oh, let's do it again. And they go viral. The ones that don't are the ones that have pictures of homeless people in them Mm -hmm. and or stray dogs. That is in People are like, oh. But they're, they, those buildings, everyone they show that goes viral, you can't see the homeless people in them, but they are very much there. Right. And when they do show them, all of a sudden it doesn't. And it's like, I think it's, a, I, he explains, I forgot if it was shame or what the emotion is, but it's an emotion that's not shareable. It's just like, I, I can't see I the can't person doing it. it. I can't deal with it. I can't deal. I can see the building by itself. That's like, how could this be? Blah, blah, blah. But with the person... That's not viral on a plastic in an ocean. That's it's like an inanimate object. We're okay with And Even the turtle is kind of like, okay, it's a living thing, but it's not as familiar as a dog even. Right. Because then that's like a pet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Most people don't have pet turtles, but 
Yeah. So they're like, we need really genius minds around some of this stuff on like, yeah, let's do the straw effect. Like let's call it the straw effect mm -hmm. for other e meaningful things. Um, yeah. And how do we crack the code um, so that we'll start paying attention, right? When it comes to even plastic bottles. I mean, there's no reason to have a plastic bottle and yet they're everywhere and it makes you like insane. I think that might be one of the best things we, if we could figure this out, maybe we might not figure it out. Maybe like, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, I, maybe, I call, yeah, maybe I'll call you in like a couple of days or you yeah. call me in three years. Like, Hey, but what is the hack to the brain to make something shareable that shows human suffering? Right. Because like in the eighties and, and people get like compassion fatigue, so they don't do it, but they used to say like, Oh, the flies in the eyes videos. I don't know if you remember like world vision videos or whatever. And it would show like starving children and they're literally like flies in their eyes and uh -huh. just like, they're not even batting them away because they don't even have that much energy. And it was always just like, Ugh, like so offensive kind of. Yeah. A apparently at that stage, it must've worked. They don't do that anymore. Right. No one's doing flies in the eyes videos because it just feels like it's not shareable to your point. Like it's yeah. not inspiring. It doesn't aspire you to a better future. It just shows you how horrible and shitty the situation is. Right. Oh, I remember what it was. Okay. So the two most shareable emotions, um, according to Ryan holiday in his book is, uh, humor and mm. anger, anger, number one, humor, number two. Anger number one, that's interesting. Yeah. Although with the whole fake news epidemic, maybe not. Yeah. So so you <laughs> so get really surprising. angry about something and you and you end up sharing it. And so people were sharing the apocalyptic pictures of Detroit as they're angry. How can a great American city look like this? Yeah. But sad is one of the least shared emotions. And right. that's what the homeless person and the dog within that would cue. Right. So you can't cue a sad, you have to cue an angry. We have to get or people angry about the Hershey's <laughs> chocolate stuff or get right. angry about but sex But you can't slavery. show them the kid because then that makes them sad. Pretty much. We have to right. find a way that how can somebody understand can that sex slavery is a to thing make them mad. that makes you yeah mad. angry about this. And which is really what made me, I mean, I was horrified. So I feel like that's a combination of sad and angry. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I was just like, well, I was feeling probably a thousand things at once. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I like your idea of anger moving people to action. Yeah. I guess it's uh, maybe it might lie in how the males treat the females. Mm. That could cue some anger. I know it would for me, and I'm not even a female. Right. Um, so perhaps that would be something where you see like the girl – what like her life perspective and and not just her sitting there all like no. hollow and whatever like literally someone hitting her <laughs> makes it Unfortunately, then like oh. but then it's real like some hidden camera type footage yeah and that could then make it um very but there's got to be a shift i mean to your point we do have to like activate the soul right uh, like a higher consciousness i don't know whatever anyone wants to call it all of the above um, to just say like, enough is enough and we're not going to put up with this anymore, mm -hmm. right? Like it's not okay to treat the most vulnerable people in our society like a piece of trash. Like that's not okay. And not just say it, but then, okay, so if we say it and we believe it, now how do our actions as a society reflect that? Don't, why is that all the time when people say this kind of stuff? Like the main thing that I see about it, I'm just like, Really? is when people get really upset about climate change and global warming, yet they still drive around in a Subaru 
or not Subaru, a an suburban. SUV. Yeah, yeah, sorry, not a Subaru, right. a suburban. And they still, um, if they have a lot of money, they're taking a private jet right. somewhere to a screening of the global <laughs> warming yeah. movie. I, 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 I mean, I, I see irony, that all the time. The irony in all of it. Because people don't like to be inconvenienced, right? They don't like to be inconvenienced. Like so they can These say other people it. need to act this way. I don't need to act this way. <laughs> yeah. But you guys need to because this is a problem. Right. They need to realize the irony in that. Right. Like if you want to do something, be like, and you know, maybe all of a sudden you could start a new business that's all about sustainability for global warming if you just were to put yourself towards right. it. Because you don't see that movement happening as much as it should. Right. And I think it's just because And being maybe able to track it in big. a way. I mean, but I feel like when we look about that, I mean, I feel like I've done an app before kind of like measuring my family's carbon footprint. Uh-huh. Right. So you can say, like, if you live in a house this big, square footage, like, we have chosen not to have air conditioning, right? We don't need it most of the year, but sometimes I feel no, like we kind of do. Last week. So, yeah. <laughs> so we might have some fans. Okay. So that's less of a carbon footprint than someone who has maybe our square footage home with AC, mm-hmm. right? So then there's all these, and what kind of car do you drive? And how far is your commute to work? And, sure. and, and, you know, you can do all these things. Um, and then sort of like see what your family's carbon footprint is. And then what are ways to, to lessen it? Um, and then like work towards, yeah, we're going to, we're going to put back, right? Cause some people it's like, well, they have eight kids. Maybe they have to drive the SUV, but they could do other things, you know, that other families do like not have AC or something that goes the other way. Right. Sure. Cause we're never going to be perfect. So that's like when I was saying people can get overwhelmed, but you got to start somewhere yeah. and just knowing what our carbon footprint is, I feel like is a good piece of information the because then we can. I can't even remember. Just Google carbon yeah, footprint app. Right. There's probably a dozen. Yep. Yeah. And this was, I feel like, a while ago. I should probably refresh. <laughs> I'm sure. See yeah. Where, like yeah. where we're at or what. That's fast. I, I, what I find uh, slightly frustrating, I don't get, um, I try not to get upset because what's the point? But how few people just ride a bike in this town that's built so many bike paths? There's like, I was riding a road bike in Chicago area and that was. Scary as hell. I thought I was going <laughs> to die so many times. And yeah. here, like, people respect, they understand. And there's bike paths, like, almost everywhere but Third Street. We have to fix that. Yeah. But besides that, even on the freeway, there's a bike lane that yeah. I've used. <laughs> it's I a know. little scary. And some of it, I think, is back to your education piece, right? Because as much, like, I did that when my kids were little. Um, and actually, Jeff and I, my husband, we shared one car. Mm-hmm. So we were, like, probably the only family on our street as a family of four that had one car. Um, but because I had that double chariot and I would take my kids around to the library, this and that on my bike, double and it was chariot. great. Okay. So it was you, like a little oh, stroller thing behind my bike. Right? Yeah. So we could go pretty much anywhere in town to your point. I would mm-hmm. like go to Northwest crossing. I would just kind of be all over town and get a good but workout. There too. becomes at some point, even as a mom, I'm like, okay, my kids are too big. Like I have to drive them yeah. around and now they have a friend and now we're carpooling or whatever, but carpooling is a great way to say sure. like, Hey, let's do this. Not just for the convenience of our family schedule, but literally for the planet mm-hmm. carpool your kids to school or to wherever. Um, so again, it's kind of inconvenient. So when we were talking, I think there was a book or something, the inconvenient truth. I don't even remember what it was about, but that title rings in my head because it's an inconvenient truth that mm-hmm. we all just have to commit at some point. Like I've told my kids, Hey, when you guys are like driving, I'm like taxing them around everywhere these days, but, but I'll have them ride their bike. You want to go to the old mill? I don't need to take you ride your bike. Yeah. <laughs> you want to go to the river, ride your bike, ride your skateboard. Like Good. I don't need to take you. Right. No. So already training them. But I said, when you guys are, have your license and you're driving and doing whatever, I'm going to get a little scooter. I'll be in like a little Vespa, right. <laughs> Cruising around town because I can. Yeah. 
at that point, right? Yeah. Riding my bike and doing other things. Oh, well, I think it'd be good if like more people could end up seeing that. And then uh, as they complain about traffic, if they stop becoming traffic, (laughs) it's like, you know, you're a part of it when you're complaining about it, right? Like, oh, it's traffic. Like you're a part. It's not just traffic. Like you're a part of the traffic. Just just want to let you know. (laughs) So, you know, if you rode a bike, then you're still part of the bike traffic. but That's very small. Um, well, one thing before that, I want to, one last question to leave you on is, uh, what going back to the business side of it, um, which is a philanthropy at the same time. Um, what do you think was the, oh man, this thing has legs and it's going to do a lot of good when it comes to, you know, growing a business and giving jobs here in the States and also in India and yeah. I, and we have a profit. I mean, this is all around. Look at how good this is. Look at at what point it was like, this is a really good catalyst of good. It really was when we spun the business out from under the nonprofit because it was functioning under the 501c3. Mm-hmm. And when we spun it out and invested in some of the things that businesses do, like marketing and other things that is really hard to do under a nonprofit umbrella. People don't like their donor dollars to go to like Facebook ads or to go to, you know, like... Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we spun that out, so in like 2015 to see like, does it have legs or not that I think was really kind of a tipping point. Um, and by that time, Tom shoes had already made a huge splash. And so it was already that there was a market, like people are buying goods. And then everyone did the copycat, copycat one for one in various verticals. Right. So Warby Parker did it in glasses, like Tom shoes, you know, made it up. And then everyone just sort of jumped on that bandwagon. Mm -hmm. We never jumped on that bandwagon. But it was great and that they were pioneering the space that there's a market of conscientious and aspirational consumers that are out there. And so that was really kind of a win to our back um, to know that there's people willing to pay a premium for a product that they believe in and that has a transparent supply chain. Um, yeah, so that was kind of the moment. And then we we still have, we're a very small unknown brand. You know, mm-hmm. people maybe in Bend know about us a little bit. Not even everyone would. Um, but yeah, well, we're going to get mean, there the and we're going to grow at the same time. How many millions are you guys doing? Well, it's kind of ebbed and flowed, um, but we've done, you know, 4 million in online sales. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we're really wanting to go much bigger than that in kind of a wholesale space to have like a market penetration, not just you here in that, the U S like it's small, They're, like the percentage of businesses that make it to seven figures is like, I think it's less than. 2% or something like that. Well, it's what's a very even really number. interesting, and this is what I'll toot, not just my horn, but our um, our company's horn is um, female-owned businesses rarely go past a million dollars. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's changing, but, um, but yeah, it's yeah. a pretty small percentage that can grow above a million dollars. So that's been nice that we have, you know, a group of badass women at the helm doing something cool. Yeah, we got that too. Because <laughs> Sarah and I 50-50, and so. Great. I don't know that I, no, I guess no gender owns us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's equal it's each 50, other. 50, yeah. <laughs> um, well, thanks a lot for being on. Thanks and, for having um, me. It was a fun conversation. It's incredibly insightful. And I look forward to buying chocolate differently now. And coffee. And coffee. Yes. And pajamas. And pajamas. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. It. Cheers.